The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Aurora Meadows. She is a nutritionist with the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., that works to protect the environment and public health. Aurora Meadows is a fellow registered dietitian, and she is focused specifically on helping consumers understand how our food system and the chemicals in food, including pesticides, affect human health. Before joining EWG, Ms. Meadows worked at a community health center in Boston, interned at the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion at the USDA, helped prepare and promote healthy school meals at D.C. Central Kitchen, that's in Washington, D.C., and worked on cancer studies in California. She holds a B.S. in Nutritional Sciences and Toxicology from the University of California in Berkeley, and she holds a Master's of Science degree from Tufts University. Welcome, Aurora. Thank you, Melinda. Excited to be here. You have such a great skill set. There aren't many dietitians that also have a combined degree in Nutritional Sciences and Toxicology, and I think that brings you really well to the work that you do with the Environmental Working Group. And I just wanted to focus on a few things that we've shared through email with our listeners, because I think they're so important. I know that you've been working on food scores, and we're going to talk about that, because that's a great consumer tools for rating where should I be spending my food dollars in terms of safe and healthy foods. And then I also wanted to talk about that whole issue of organic. Is it worth the extra money? We always hear people say, oh, it's too expensive. And then I also wanted to talk about a press release that came out that looks specifically at children's exposures to chemicals in food colors and flavors. And this is not a new topic, but I had no idea that the FDA did not periodically review the safety of these ingredients. And I was alarmed to see the levels of these food ingredients or additives in food. So let's start with colors. And I want to bring that up simply because it is the summertime Kids are home from school. They're maybe playing sports. They are targeted or they're marketed to by candies and sugary drinks. And a lot of these beverages contain these food dyes. So how did you become aware of this? And what would you like our listeners to know? This issue has been around even before I became a registered dietitian. I always kind of looked at these really bright colors and there was just a curiosity of how could this thing that's just so brightly colored be particularly good for me. But there have been reports of food dyes being potentially detrimental to children since the 1970s. And there really has been a lack of action on these dyes as far back as 1977. So the FDA first started conducting studies in animals in 1977. So that gives you a sense of how long they have been dragging their feet on making any kind of protective action for our kids. So 
we recently had a report come out of California, and they looked at the wealth of evidence, all the studies conducted to date, and they found that there is concerns about food dyes and inattentiveness in children, hyperactivity, and other behavioral problems. Mm. So our suspicions, they're valid. Right. I remember, too, as a young dietitian learning about these colors, and a lot of the research was done by Dr. Feingold, and it was kind of pushed aside. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, how much yeah. of the the disregard for his research probably came from the industry, and we weren't thinking about mm-hmm. that at the time. But so this is some research that came from the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, and mm-hmm. they looked at the results of a two-year study that reviewed extensive research looking at food dyes such as red number 40 and yellow number 5, two of the nine color additives that have been approved by the FDA. They're found in food and drinks, and they pose significant risks to children, especially when their brains are in this vulnerable growing state. So what kind Mm -hmm. of foods contain these colors? Anything that's going to be brightly colored, actually your biggest source of these colors is going to be in beverages. So those sugary drinks, fruit drinks, Gatorades, any of these brightly colored beverages are going to be contained the most just because of the pure volume. Right. Well, there was one study that was cited in this report that showed that exposure to just one milligram of yellow number five affected the most sensitive children. So apparently some kids are more sensitive than others, but if you've got a sensitive child, it's really important to pay attention to this. And I was alarmed A single serving of lemon-lime Gatorade has three times this amount, so three milligrams, and a serving of Sunny D Citrus Punch has more than 20 times as much, and one serving of brightly colored cereal can contain more than 30 milligrams of food dyes. This is really, should be illegal, right? Why isn't the FDA stepping in? Oh, I wish I knew, but there's also a lot of food dyes that are concerning in cupcakes and birthday cakes, which is actually ties into the other color additives that's been making a lot of news lately, titanium dioxide. So you can have 50 milligrams of these food dyes in one cupcake that, you know, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm not a huge fan of ice cupcakes, but, you know, when I go to a birthday party and my son wants to participate, It's hard to say no, but knowing just the concentration of dyes in that and, you know, and how many people are celebrating all across this country and not knowing what the potential effects of that are. Right. Well, and I remember, too, when my own kids were playing sports, one parent would be assigned the beverages. And because these sports beverages have this health halo, we don't think of them as soda, really, without carbonation, but they're super high in sugar. And they're also contaminated, in my opinion, with these food dyes. And if you think about active, healthy kids that are getting thirsty in the summer, they're probably going to have more than one of these beverages. Yeah. And in previous years, one serving of beverage was one-third of a container. So you can see how quickly the amount of sugar as well as dyes that these kids can consume. Right. And I think with so much digital marketing now directed to kids, you know, it used to be just the television we had to be concerned with. Mm -hmm. But now it's also kids are being targeted directly by these producers of these kinds of beverages and junk foods. So we really have to help kids, I think, be 
sleuths and help them say, no, I don't want this. But it's tough, like you right. say. So this is a problem. And also, you know, sorry, the advert games. You know, right. I was shocked when I learned about these advert games, which essentially are marketing tools that food companies turn into a game where you have to crunch the spicy hot Cheeto into your device mic in order to progress in the game. You know, these are things that a lot of parents might not even know exist. Yeah. Well, and I was also interested to read that the macaroni and cheese that Kraft makes for the European Union does not contain these colors, but that which is made for American audiences does contain the colors. So I guess we just need a lot more awareness and then a push to craft to get those colors out of the product for the U.S. market as well. Is that what you're recommending? You know, in California, there was a law proposed to label foods that contain these dyes as potentially related to inattentiveness and hyperactivity and behavior problems. And that's what they actually did in the European Union was they made any product that contained these dyes have a warning label on it. And that warning label, in effect, I couldn't find a a single product that had a warning label in it in the EU. And all the products that, you know, the same product that's made in the United States in the European Union was made with natural food dyes like turmeric being used for yellow and paprika being used for reds and things of that nature. So you can see that when people have the choice and are made aware that these things are potentially harmful, then consumers don't want them in their products. And so if we could get a similar law enacted, California is a good place to start then consumers would have that choice and it might encourage manufacturers to do the right thing. Yeah. So if your child is going to be going to a sporting event, what would you advise parents to bring as an alternative? Water with some fun things added to it, something like some cucumber slices and mint. I always feel super fancy when I go somewhere and they have water that's been had a little fruit in it or a little flavor added in terms of fruits or vegetables. So, you know, something like that. And then, you know, you don't have to have replace those electrolytes with a beverage. You can replace it with something else that's salty. So maybe like celery and peanut butter with salted peanut butter. So kids can get their sweats and electrolytes back, but not in a dye-filled, sugar-filled beverage. Right. Yeah. What I find refreshing, too, is sometimes just taking some sparkling water and diluting Mm -hmm. a little bit of fruit juice with that or making my own lemonade. Even if I add Mm -hmm. a little bit of honey or sugar, it's nothing compared to the amount that's in these processed beverages. So I think what we really have to do is just warn parents that these studies have been going on for decades, that these colors are potentially harmful, especially for sensitive children. So when we hear about parents say, yeah, my kids are bouncing off the wall when they come back from the birthday party, a lot of parents Mm -hmm. assume, oh, it's just the sugar. But I think we should also be calculating in the fact that these food dyes have a remarkable effect on some children's behavior. So read labels. Those ingredients are required on the ingredient label and just reject those that have these artificial colors. So I wanted to move on now to the work that you're doing with these food scores. And I went to the Environmental Working Group website, and I will provide a link to that for our listeners. Tell me, what exactly is the benefit of having a food score? What does this program do for us? 
Well, it's great. People have a smartphone. They can use our Healthy Living app to just scan the barcode, and it will take you to a page that will explain what are the concerns around this food. And our biggest driver of our score is our nutrition concern. So obvious things like added sugars, too much sodium, those types of things are going to affect the score the most. Then we have our ingredient concern, and that's going to highlight things like these dyes and titanium dioxide, TBHQ, preservative that damages our immune system, other food additives, also contaminants like arsenic in rice and mercury in seafood, those types of things, and then as well as pesticide residues. So all those things are going to be folded into the ingredient concern. And then last but definitely not least is our processing concern. So we know that ultra-processed foods are associated with many, many chronic diseases. I've been reviewing the literature on ultra-processed foods recently, and they've found it connected to, you know, the obvious ones like obesity and diabetes and heart disease, high blood pressure, but also things like asthma, depression, other things that weren't necessarily obvious. So the more research we do into these ultra-processed foods, the more we see just how damaging they are. And it's really concerning because in the U.S., we're talking 60 to 70% of our calories are coming from these ultra-processed foods, which many of our ancestors would not even recognize as food. So those are all highlighted in, in our food scores database. That is amazing. 60 to 70% yeah. of the food that it's U.S. Crazy. consumers eat are considered ultra-processed. Wow. Yeah. Okay, let yeah. me take one break because we're halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Aurora Meadows. She is a nutritionist with the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., and this organization works to protect the environment and public health Big focus on sustainable agriculture and associated foods from that system. I wanted to get back to the food scores because I think that this is a really important tool. And of course, I should mention that the Environmental Working Group, probably most people know it for their Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 scores of pesticide residues on fruits and vegetables. And since we are in the heart of the summer growing season with lots of different harvested fresh fruits and vegetables, it's a good idea to see which foods are going to be more likely to contain higher levels of pesticides. And of course, you folded that into your food scores, so that's good. But probably people know about those resources from the Environmental Working Group anyway. All right, let's get back to the food scores. So yeah, processed foods. Wow. So if you simply want to make a change in the diet, of course, one of our biggest recommendations is to eat less processed foods, but it's hard for some populations to do that, especially ones that live in low-income communities where they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Right. Food, food deserts, yes, yes, definitely. If you can't get access to healthy food or you can't afford it, you know, how, how can you eat it? So part of the database also helps people kind of make sense of these it's easy when you look at the front of package of a product and to be fooled that the that these claims are present the food as a, a healthy food and it's it's often consumers can be surprised to learn that 
that peanut butter with seven grams of protein also contains hydrogenated oils, right? And so these are the things that we can help consumers get past and point to healthier options that are available in that food category. Right. You don't have to get peanut butter that has those additives, but it's often the cheaper ones. So again, you know, when you've got a budget, it's tough to make these decisions. And that leads me to, I'm going to blend in some other research that you've done, and that is this great report, Organic, the Original Clean Food. And I'm sure that you have heard people say, I would buy organic if I could. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they think that, you know, it doesn't mean that much anymore. They're confused about maybe the watering down of the label. This is what I hear. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who say, no, you know, it just costs too much. But does it really? You know, I looked into this question and found that most Americans, on average, eat out two to three times per week. And if you look at the average budget of the American family, if consumers bought every single thing organic and ate at home, completely organically, that would cost a third of the price of eating out. So if consumers could switch more to eating at home, they could afford to eat 100% organic. And that's including things like organic meats and organic olive oils and other things that tend to increase the price of eating organically. And even with those high-priced items, it's a third of the cost of eating out. And so that's our organic within reach report. And you can see all the calculations. We tried it ourselves. And we also did a time comparison and found that the amount of time that people spend driving, waiting in line, waiting to order, and then waiting to receive their food, at the end of the day, there's actually a time savings involved with cooking at home. So those are the kind of two myths that are associated with, you know, eating organic cooking takes too much time and it's just too expensive. So for the average American family, organic is within reach. Obviously, if you're on a tight budget, that can be a obviously a barrier. And that is something that we're working on at the Environmental Working Group because we recognize that. And so we're actually working on a project right now where we're looking at what are the ingredients that are prohibited for use in organic and how can we provide and point consumers to things that are not necessarily organic, but are as clean as organic, that don't contain these additives that wouldn't be allowed. And so we're kind of working on on, on something like that. So I'm kind of excited in the future to to release that so that, you know, we can point consumers towards better conventional foods if organic is not within reach. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about the comment you made earlier about kids that are exposed to some of these additives and how these highly processed foods, for example, that they can actually exacerbate problems like asthma. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about the cost of the medications that a child has to take for asthma. Mm -hmm. And so when you weigh the cost of the highly processed food, you really start to realize that those highly processed foods are extremely expensive Not only are you getting poor nutrient levels in them, but you're also getting these potentially adverse additives that can be problematic. And one thing that I learned from this organic, the original clean food report that I was not aware of is that 
An estimated 2,000 synthetic chemicals can be used in conventional packaged foods, but fewer than 40 synthetic substances can be used in organic packaged foods. So there again, there's just another reason why organic really is the better choice in the marketplace. And I think that this opens up a much bigger topic about why can't people afford good food? And that leads to more of an economic discussion about how much are people earning in their jobs? If they're not earning Mm -hmm. a living wage, they can't afford good food. And then they become a drain to the medical system. So, you know, I think that we need to have a big rethink about our whole food system. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, if we were producing more of our food locally, more people would need to be involved in agriculture like they used to be. We'd have more of a connection to that food and we would have better paying jobs associated with producing food. And so that's a kind of upward spiral effect of going local and producing organic and then improving the quality of food, but also the quality of life and jobs for people. Exactly. And a revitalization of rural communities, which is Mm -hmm. also sorely needed. What I love about this report, Aurora, is that you've got a table that shows substances allowed in production of conventional foods that are not allowed in organic food due to environmental concerns. And you've got this long list of ingredients as well as an easy-to-check concern list. And you start reading that, you go, oh, I need to check my ingredient labels. I buy much fewer processed foods today than I did decades ago, the more I learn about this. But you've got like sodium benzoate. There's something Mm -hmm. that's in, I see that on a lot of labels. It's found in close to 5,000 products in your food scores database, and it's linked in lab studies to developmental toxicity at high doses and to DNA damage. Wow. Or polysorbate 80. That's in a lot of things like ice creams. It's found Mm -hmm. in over 2,000 products in your food scores database, and it's considered a probable endocrine disruptor by the EPA. Seems like these things should be banned. Yeah, and that gets back to how the FDA is regulating food additives. And our last food additive law was written in 1958. So that just goes to show you we need to kind of take a second look. And even if using that law, if we were to follow that law to the letter, things would be better. But there's this kind of grass loophole generally recognized as safe, which was originally written into that 58 law So things like vinegar and baking soda wouldn't need to go through a food additive petition process. But industry has exploited that. And now your sodium carboxylmethylcelluloses and all a bunch of gobbledygook of acronyms are going through this essentially loophole in order to avoid actually submitting a formal petition and having the safety reviewed by the FDA. So it's alarming how many of the chemicals that are in conventional food that the FDA has in fact never reviewed or may not even know is on the market because food manufacturers do not have to notify the FDA that they're putting a new ingredient in food. So when you think about the partially hydrogenated vegetable oil kind of experience that we've had That never went through an FDA review, and 70 years later, we're still finding it in in products and trying to get it out of foods. And that's caused 23,000 heart attacks a year, 8,000 deaths a year. And so we really need to hold FDA's feet to the fire to say, hey, you need to do a better job of actually reviewing 
these food additives? And hey, why don't you re-review them? The fact that these food dyes were last looked at in 1969, 1971, who knows what the use levels of those dyes was then compared to now, and how the science has changed, which is something that that California report highlighted. The things that they were looking for in the 60s and 70s are, are very different from what we can pick up in studies today. And so the USDA manages to review every single ingredient that's allowed in organic every five years and get that done. Obviously, there's a lot more going on in conventional food, but never having to be reviewed. There's a happy medium to be found there between never and five years. And so we are encouraging the FDA to take a second look at these food additives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, to look at where the research comes from, proving whether or not an additive is safe. So if those research studies are coming from industry that profits from those Mm -hmm. ingredients, then that shouldn't have the same weight as something that comes from an independent, publicly funded research entity. And those kinds of layers of complexity in our regulatory system, they're kind of hidden behind the curtain. And I think that the Environmental Working Group has done a really good job in pulling back the curtain to help us see. So thank you for that. We just have a couple of minutes. So I want to give that time to you and maybe pull forth anything from either the organic report or the food scores work that you're doing that we may not have covered that you really want our listeners to know. Thank you, Melinda. It's my pleasure to work at the Environmental Working Group. It really is a blessing. I have a nine-year-old and He has a lot of anxiety about the world, climate, emergency, pollution, just the future of our planet. And it is so great to know that every day I get to work on these issues and be part of that solution. And, you know, just encourage our listeners to check out our resources. And we don't have to do everything, just piece by piece, day by day, doing something and building on that spreading awareness of the issue, spreading awareness of the fact that writing our representatives is a huge positive thing that we can do to make these changes. A lot of people are busy just trying to get by, and we need to be advocates. If we're aware of these things and we're doing things to protect our families, how can we also work to protect everyone's family. It's unfortunate in in the food space, often we're told to like buy our way out of these problems instead of having all of us be protected. That is the part of the mission of the Food and Drug Administration is, is to protect public health. And we need to make them do their job. And so I think the biggest thing is just talking to your friends and really just doing things different because that's the most powerful thing is not when you try to talk someone's heads off, but but when you actually just show up with some homemade lemonade and some water with mint and cucumber in it and give that to the kids for their drink. And then people ask questions and then you can get that that conversation started. I think we need to shift norms and, uh, you know, that just starts one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Setting a good example by our actions every day so that our children, like your nine-year-old son, doesn't have to feel anxious about the future. I think we all have a role in helping 
the world be a better place for future generations. So unfortunately, we've got to close, but I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Aurora Meadows, nutritionist with the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., working to protect the environment and public health. Thank you so much for your time today and for your great work. Thank you. Thanks for having me.